my good brother Mark over there told me this week that um, we've been in Matthew for three years. I, I didn't know that. If you would have asked me, I would have said maybe a year and a half. So um, I hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> it, is, it is the magisterial gospel, so you can't go wrong studying Jesus Christ and his words, right? So we'll be done someday. Not Sunday, someday. <laughs> but it'll be on a Sunday. <laughs> Yeah, let's pray. Father, we just ask for your blessing as we look at your word this morning. Incredible truths from the mouths of our Lord who held nothing back and told us things as they really are. And we ask you to help us to grasp for ourselves um, what this means. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at the Olivet Discourse, and I I was thinking as we look at this, can you imagine what Christianity would, would be without the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, if that just wasn't ever talked about, or if you you can't even imagine it, actually. In fact, I think it would be safe to say that Christianity wouldn't exist without understanding that Jesus will come again, because his return is bound up in everything we know about him, and is so central to the message of the Bible, as well as the gospel, that to leave it out is to... um, really make him just a curiosity of history and uh, nothing would endure. If Jesus were like E.T., you know, um, he'd take a a glowing finger and put it on our heads and said, be good, and then go off into the heavens, it wouldn't be the same, right? We would be left with something that would not endure. So just a, a vague and empty moralism is not a sustainable Thing for human beings that have a much more desperate need because those things we can't keep and don't. Sometimes all that makes life bearable is the knowledge that God will someday set the world right. I lean on that sometimes. Evil will meet its end. The truth will be revealed. Lies will be exposed. Those that succeed in life by cruelty and treachery will have a final reckoning. It's all going to come to a wonderful conclusion. And I need to know that good is going to win, at least in the end, because human nature and the trajectory of history does not point us to good coming to an end, to, at the end of human life. But as God intervenes in a wicked world, good will come to this world. Knowing that a righteous kingdom is coming under the best man who ever walked the earth, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, That gives me peace about everything. Good will triumph because God is good and God doesn't sleep and he is coming. So we've been looking at the words of God incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth, regarding the end of the age and the dawning of a new world. That's what Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are all about. We've talked about it. It's called the Olivet Discourse because he gave it on the Mount of Olives. It's the most detailed information we have about his return from his own lips. And it's most enlightening, um, but Jesus, as we saw last time, spends a lot of time, a great deal of time, telling us what it means for us, not so much the events that are going to happen. It's actually, he gives more emphasis on um, what it means for us. So how should knowing the end ahead of time shape Our life today, that's sort of the question there. Tell us how we're supposed to live. How should it influence our choices? How should it direct our affections, our hearts, the things we care about? 
We mentioned um, that there are two imperative verbs earlier when we were looking at this, two commands that tell us how to live. Verse 42 says, be on the alert. And verse 44 says, be ready. So be on the alert, be ready. So we should be ready for his coming. We are to be ever vigilant. And Jesus compared it to the kind of watchfulness people should have over their property. In verse 43, do you remember that? You can never entirely dismiss from your mind the need to keep your properties secure, right? So too, Jesus says in verse 44, to be aware like that, like the thief could come at any time in the night. You're not, he never calls ahead. Except last Sunday, he, he called ahead, just as an example, which doesn't happen. But Jesus said, um, be watchful, be ready, because it could, he could come at any time. And you need to see how important this really is. There's 97 verses in chapter 24 and 25 together, and the last 56 of those, well over half of it, are dedicated to warning us to be ready. Not so much the events, he talked about that, but he spends more time saying you need to be ready. And he describes the consequences of being unprepared for that. So we want to know what happens, but he wants to tell us, be ready, which is more important. So what exactly does readiness look like? I mean, how are you supposed to pack for the end of the world, right? I think Mrs. Howell on Gilligan's Island would say, oh, what does one wear to an apocalypse? That's... That's not the question. That's not what it means by readiness. What we put on or what we pack in our suitcase or anything like that. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Readiness has to do entirely with the condition of your soul, not anything else. Are you ready to meet God? That's the question. And modern evangelicals rarely ponder this question because we've been taught so thoroughly that we are saved by faith alone, that we rarely doubt our condition before God, so we never really think about it very often. And hopefully you don't really need to, but I think it's a good idea to do that. Because here is a warning from Jesus, like we should absolutely be making sure that we're ready and not drifting. There's a potential... um, problem in this, it's not with him, it's with us. And that's because of the way we define faith sometimes. I always fear that somebody believes they believe and they don't know what that means. And, and it's not true of them. So they're not ready. And they won't be ready when he comes. We often define faith in our culture as what um, theologians would call mental assent. You know what that means? It means, I, in my head, I agree that it's true. That's mental assent. That is, I believe Christianity is true, therefore I am saved. And, and when we hear faith alone saves, that's what we think that means. But that's not right. There is no, none of the great reformers that created the Protestant church and brought the gospel back to the world and preached salvation by grace through faith alone, none of them believed that that's what faith, saving faith was just believing mentally, mental assent, just believing, oh, I think it's true. That's not what it is. That's not what justification by faith alone means. Faith is more than assenting to certain truths. It's actually embracing a person. Faith is putting your, saving faith is putting your trust, your faith in the person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ who came to bear your sins. If you haven't done that, and you just think it's true, you don't have saving faith. 
There's a big difference between embracing the Savior and just thinking it's all true. Because you can think it's true and it have no touch on your heart or your life at all. So you can say, I believe he is the king, but I don't have a big interest in him or what he asks of me or what it means to be the subject of the king. I don't, I don't think about those things, but I believe he is the king, the coming king and the savior and things like that. I meet people who believe it's all true and never let Jesus shape their hearts or direct their lives in any way. That's not saving faith. I just have to warn you about that. Many people, too many people think that way. If there's no desire to serve the king, then you might believe he's the king, but you're not a subject of his. You don't belong to him. What kind of faith would that be? It's not what the Bible means by faith. If you think about faith as believing something, if you really believe something, it shapes you. It shapes your mind and it shapes your heart as well. If you actually believe something, you start to think differently based on that belief and you start to, your affections change, the things you care about change. If nothing like that is there, you don't really believe it. If you believe Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, that he, he loved you so much that he saved you when you didn't deserve it at all and welcomed you as a child of God and forgave you and he turned God's wrath away from you by his own sacrifice, his own shed blood, if that doesn't affect you but you think it's true, you don't, you don't get it yet. You're not there. That changes people. That produces gratitude understanding that. And love, if God loves you that much, how can you not love him in return? And loving him, of course, is wanting to please him and serve him and all of that. So you need to think through whether you really believe. So starting in our text today, there's these four sections, beginning with Matthew 24, 45, that deal with this idea of readiness, readiness as a measure of genuine faith. That's really what it's about. Readiness is a measure of genuine faith. This portion of scripture is aimed at professing followers of Jesus, not in people in the world generally, just it's about his people or people that claim to be his people. And each parable he gives gives us a little bit different perspective on this theme of readiness. And we're only going to look at the first one today. That's why we're taking three years to, so far. Because we're just going to look at a few verses. But um, readiness is defined as a life that is consistent with your per- profession. Okay? I'll say that one more time. Readiness, just the way Jesus defines it here, is a life that is consistent with your profession. doesn't mean perfection or anything like that. It just means you really believe it. And you're, you believe in him. And you've embraced him. And so what he cares about, you care about. That's what it means. So let's, um, you know, before we get into that, let me just remind you of the words from the Sermon on the Mount, however many years ago that was that we looked at that. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You do not want to show up before the throne of God on that day, on the last day, and him say to you, 
I don't know you. Depart from me. You don't want that to happen. There are people who are going to be very surprised on Judgment Day. That's what Jesus is saying right there. Thinking they were Christians, saved and sealed, but are not. And Jesus says they practice lawlessness. In other words, they have no regard for God's law. They don't even think about it, which is a sure sign of phoniness. And he says, I never knew you. That's what he tells the lawless. Similarly, he gives a warning here. He is coming back. There is a judgment. He will be looking for faithfulness among his followers. And uh, he will start right where he should with the leaders of his people, leadership. And to explore this area of leadership in his church, he uses the illustration of a household. The, the, the text that Taylor read earlier in the service, 1 Timothy chapter 3, it actually calls the church the household of God. And Jesus uses that idea in his first parable here. So he's the master of the house. So let's look at it, verse 45. Who then, he says, is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Now you gotta remember, this is coming right off verse 44, which said, for this reason you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. So it's bouncing right off that. He's coming when you won't expect it, and who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom the master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. So verse 45 is a parable and it's coming, it's about the coming of the Son of Man, the Messiah, and he appoints one of his slaves to feed his household. You know, even in slave world in those days, there's hierarchies. You have people that are over other slaves and taking care of business and have responsibilities that are make sure everybody else is taken care of. That's a pretty easy idea to understand. So one of the slaves is appointed to make sure that all the other slaves are taken care of that they're fed. Now, that's like real world stuff, but it's a parable, so talking about what the parable means, what is that? Well, if Christ is the master and he's gone away and he's put slaves in charge of the other slaves to oversee them and take care of them and feed them, what's he talking about? He's talking about the church, right? And those that lead in the church and their responsibility. So the, the ones appointed task is to feed the other servants, the other workers. The Apostle Paul picks up on that language um, himself several times, describing the church as a household. In writing to Pastor Timothy, it's very clear. He says, I write to you so that you will know how one ought... Timothy was a pastor, so he's writing to a pastor. He says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of of the truth. So he's saying, you've got a big responsibility, and I'm writing to you so that you will know how to conduct yourself, how to take responsibility. You need to take it seriously. And 1 Timothy chapter 3, which we read earlier in the service, is the very same chapter where Paul gives the qualifications of a shepherd of the flock of God. So individual churches will have shepherds, elders, pastors over them. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. So that is a person who has matured to the point where these certain qualities are noticeable, they're consistent, not perfect, but consistent. The elders have charge of God's household. It's an awesome trust. 
And likewise, the people in the church, the other servants, are to listen to these men. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So to the other people in, under their leadership, he says, let them joyfully serve by cooperating with them, working with them, appreciating them. Um, holding them accountable. So these leaders keep watch over the souls of people under their charge and they will give an account, he says. Did they feed them God's word? This whole idea of feeding the servants, what is the, what's a church leader supposed to feed the people? God's word, that's it. So did they feed God's word faithfully? Are they trusting in the truth of the Bible, the sufficiency of God's word as they do that? Or do they make stuff up? Are they more interested in their own feelings and their own opinions than the Word of God, than faithfully teaching the Word of God? Are they imprudent and lacking in judgment when they hear with approval other teachers who bend the Word or break the Word or misuse the Word? Do do they follow after them and think they're wonderful or, or do they seek to correct those kinds of errors? Are they obsessed with fame? Are they obsessed with money? Do they use people to serve them instead of serving them by feeding them properly? So, we're going to be judged for these things. I am going to stand before God judged specifically for those things. And the Bible speaks with one voice to the shepherds of God's flock and the teachers in the flock about this huge responsibility. Even a Sunday school teacher bears this responsibility. All of the apostles take time to speak to God's shepherds and the church. There's lots of passages in the Bible about that. Peter, the great apostle, sort of the leader of the 12, he wrote to the elders in the first, his first letter, 1 Peter Chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a really amazing moment in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul gathers you know, Paul planted this church in Ephesus and he pastored it, he pastored it for years and then when he was traveling and planting other churches he came back going on his way to Jerusalem and he gathers the elders from this church that he had planted in Ephesus um, and he calls them together and he gives this, gives this great talk to them in Acts chapter 20 but part of that in verse 28, 20, Acts 20, 28 he says, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Can you imagine a a more profound charge to somebody than that of their responsibility? Jesus Christ purchased this church with his blood. The Holy Spirit has appointed you to be an overseer of it. So you'd better be doing it right. That's what he's saying. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And we think of the church that Jesus purchased with his blood. These men have made, been made overseers of that very body of believers. So Paul says, be on guard for yourselves. The Holy Spirit has done this, put you in this place. And you're never to forget that. So Jesus went to the cross for the very people that the shepherds are over, overseeing and feeding and taking care of. So he's commending 
his people into the care of these shepherds. It's a big responsibility, huh? Yeah. James, the Lord's brother, writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. So scripture over and over reminds church leaders of this sacred commission to shepherd well, to feed the people well. Do you think we're picky about theology here? That's why. (laughs) Uh, That's why sound doctrine is important. It's not a small matter. The master puts the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the teachers in a position of influence and responsibility in his church and he's expecting them to do the job faithfully. And if we don't do it faithfully, we're going to be accountable to him. So in our parable, Jesus says, verse 46, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. I put you in charge of these other guys to feed them. When he gets back, if he's been doing it, that slave will be blessed. It's the greatest trust on earth to oversee and feed the master's household, purchased with his blood. It's a supremely precious thing, but a supreme responsibility as well. And when the master returns and finds that his will has been carried out, The overseer, having been diligent in his service, the master is pleased, and that servant will be blessed, which really just means happy. He'll he'll be rewarded. Verse 47 says, Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Well, that's a promotion. Remember what Peter said, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Which sounds pretty good. So God, God delights to reward faithfulness among his people. So what about servants that don't do it, that abuse the trust that the master put in their hands? What if he's disdainful of scriptural authority or puts his opinions above scriptural authority or he fears man so he lets society determine what he's going to say or what's right and what's wrong instead of the Bible? Or what if he looks down on his people and demeans them or expects them to serve him? What about that guy? Or if he toys with other women other than his wife or if he takes people's money? The pastor of a, a large church, just this week, pastor of a large church in Chicago was indicted, arrested, for bilking hundreds of thousand dollars from a federal program to feed children. The Chicago Tribune has said, this, is, this, this happened this week. He stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from a federal program intended to feed needy children. Spending the money on a $142,000 Bentley luxury vehicle, I didn't know they cost that much, and other personal expenses. Nearly a decade ago, he pleaded guilty in DuPage County to using forged signatures to swindle an elderly man's estate out of more than $100,000, court records show. Great guy. Great guy. Pastor. Holy man, right? Preacher. Does he believe? Does he believe? He might actually have mental assent and believe that the doctrines are true, that Jesus is God, he's coming back, he died for our sin. He might, he might actually believe that's true, but he doesn't believe. That's, he doesn't have saving faith. He could not do that and believe in a f- saving way. 
So he might believe the Bible's true, but does he believe Jesus is his king and he's coming back and he's going to be held accountable to him? Does he believe that? I don't think he does. I fear that he does not. The Chicago Tribune goes on to say, the pastor, quote, continues to actively promote the church on Facebook, posting lengthy videos of himself preaching and urging followers to come to worship. That's just sad. No shame. No shame. Jeremiah, in his book, he talks about how shameless. They didn't, they forgot how to blush, he says, of the people of Israel. So even now, shamed and arrested, he's posting videos of himself preaching. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I will declare to them, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. So let's look at the servant in Jesus' parable here, verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. Let's stop right there for a sec. So in his heart, he is indistinguishable from an, another, an unbeliever, you know. Because he's talking about, notice what he says. This is what he says in his heart. It's not what he says outwardly. It's what he says inwardly. My master's not coming for a long time. And so... Because he believes that, it starts coming out in his life. He's harsh. He's abusive. He's worldly. He is the king of his world, not the Lord Jesus Christ. He lives for self-gratification, not for Jesus. Righteousness does not enter into his thinking except as a tool to deceive other people. He doesn't care for the flock. He beats them down. He believes that they exist for him. And on the side, he lives a dissolute life. Well, that's just shocking. What sort of minister would act like that? I've never heard of such a thing. Then you're very ignorant because there's a lot of people out there like that. In fact, you know, they, they do studies of this stuff and narcissists are attracted to certain jobs. Pastors is one of the jobs they're attracted to. Lawyers, politicians, <laughs> Ministers, why? Because they have authority over people and people have to fawn over them and do their bidding. I mean, that's how they look at it. It's very common. All through church history, from the New Testament, even to today, it's replete with men like that, people like that. It's more common than you think. So already we see it in the New Testament. I mean, uh, uh, we could visit Corinth where there were men claiming to be super apostles and they had turned the heads of God's flock there and they were actually abusive but the people adored them and subsumed themselves under their authority. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, such, and he planted that church too so he's really jealous for them, for their faithfulness. He says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he had to warn them about these guys. Second Peter, chapter two, Peter speaks of false teachers. He says, they are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. There are so many different ways that church leaders can forsake or abuse their calling. 
And our job is really pretty simple. It's faithfully feed the flock and be an example of some kind of example of integrity. But it's far too common to see people abandon the faith or use the faith for personal gain or to spread their own weird ideas or anything like that. You know, several decades ago, there was an Episcopal bishop. He was probably the most famous bishop in this country uh, in the Episcopal church. His name was John Shelby Spong, Bishop Spong. And he became famous and was on TV all the time because he denied the truth of every major doctrine of the Christian faith. But he was an Episcopal bishop. Of course, they don't deal with their people that don't believe and deny the faith in that church. So he was safe. He, he did that for many years till he retired and started working for a pornographer. But um, it's true. But um, he denied the resurrection of Christ. He denied the deity of Christ. He denied the virgin birth of Christ. He denied salvation by faith. He said the idea that Jesus died for people's sin is a barbaric idea. And he'd write books on each of these different topics to get back on TV again and shed, share his views. And you know, you like... When I was young, I used to think, why be a bishop? I mean, why not go do that as a pagan, right? Why, de- why deny the faith as a bishop in the church? A historically, a great church, but long fallen since then. Why lead a church? Well, he had an agenda, and he wanted to share his ideas. And if he was just a guy sh- selling shoes or um, cars or something like that, or, or was a nameless philosophy professor in some university, nobody would know who he is, But because he, he's a bishop, he gets on the TV all the time, and you know how the media love weirdos. And uh, if, if he wasn't a bishop, nobody would know he ever existed. So he used that. Instead of with a man of integrity saying, you know what, I don't believe Christianity. I'm not going to be a bishop anymore. Instead of that, he used his position to twist people. He was the guy that actually um, was the heavy promoter of embracing homosexual, practicing homosexuals as clergymen in the Episcopal Church. He actually is one of the guys, the key guys that made that change in the church. So when you're a bishop, you can corrupt things from the inside. You, can, you, can, you can't do that teaching philosophy in some university. So people, people love to attack what God says in the Bible. It's the ancient rebellion, isn't it? It's the ancient rebellion of man still in the hearts of men, and they find ways to do it. But I've got to say, even in our circles, even in Bible-believing circles, men can affirm the foundation foundational truths of Christianity in every way and still abuse the flock. They can do that. There's a case going on right now. Some friends of mine are very involved with a a church that just abuses the flock, controls people, outwardly boasts of, they actually boast that they're a higher level of personal holiness, but they do things that are actually indecent and corrupt. I mean, it's very twisted. And that's a church that people I know and people I'm connected with have friends in that church. And it's becoming a national story in in our circles. They're supposed to know that Jesus is coming back and they're accountable to him. But they don't seem to believe it, you know? They reject all correction. They punish those that speak the truth to them. They excommunicate them. So this man in the parable says, my master's not coming for a long time. He's counting on it being far away and somehow he thinks that excuses what he does now. That's, you know what that is? Stupid. I mean, that's, it's f- foolish, right? It's foolish. He got where he was in the household by pretending to be loyal to the master and responsible, but it was just an act because he was there for himself. That's what it was. So what's going to happen to that guy? Let's get down to brass tacks here. Verse 50. 
The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. There's the readiness factor. And at an hour which he does not know. And will cut him in pieces. Ouch. And assign him a place with hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the master returns after all. And consistent with everything Jesus has been saying about his return, he comes unexpectedly. And the servant's doing his thing, gratifying his whims, ignoring his duties, misusing the master's resources, and suddenly the master's there, standing in the door, present, looking at him. Can you picture how he would scramble and put a plastic smile on his face and, oh, master, you're back, it's so good to see you. And there's a beaten up slave laying over there on the floor. Verse 51 does not show a merciful disposition on the part of the master. He's not gracious to him. He's not kind to him. He's done the worst thing a person can do. Abuse the people he purchased with his own blood. He will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Place with the hypocrites. That sounds like a special place, doesn't it? Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, writes this. He says, They that choose the world for their portion in this life will have hell for the portion in the other life. Hell is the proper place of hypocrites. This wicked servant has his portion with the hypocrites. When Christ would express the most severe punishment in the other world, he calls it the portion of hypocrites. If there be any place in hell that's hotter than another, as it likely there is, It will be the allotment of those that have the form but hate the power of godliness. Wicked ministers will have their portion in the other world with the worst of sinners, even with the hypocrites, and justly, for they are the worst of hypocrites. In those final words, Jesus says there, weeping shall be there, and the gnashing of teeth, those are the words Jesus always uses to describe people in hell, always. Matthew 8, 12 Those words are connected to being cast into outer darkness. Matthew 13, 42, weeping and gnashing of teeth is what those do who are cast into the furnace of fire. These are all Jesus' words. So that weeping, what is that? That's inconsolable, never-ending wretchedness, this utter, everlasting hopelessness. And, And this gnashing of teeth, that's like pain and anger and almost animal like just pure misery. And when you see people who kind of live on anger. You know any people that kind of live on anger? They're always like, they'll be like that forever. That's what he's saying these people will be like. Into the real hell. It's kind of a hell to live that way, but in real hell, that's, where, that's what people are gonna be like. Never repenting, never sorry, just angry. This description of suffering ends the parable, and Jesus designed it that way so the torments of this unfaithful servant will be ringing in our ears. That's the last word about this guy, this faithless servant. Well, he's not done. He's not finished. This is too important a subject. So um, there's two ways to go. One is the way of blessedness, and one is the way of weeping and despair. Blessedness and reward, weeping and despair. And the paths diverge on this issue of readiness. You're either ready or you're not ready when he comes. 
And readiness is really just another word for faith. If you believe, you're going to live according to what you believe. If you don't believe, you will live like there's no accountability because you don't really believe there is. So the lesson is really simple, right? Be and remain loyal to the master. Do his work willingly, thoughtfully, and act in the interest of those he cares about. It's not what we say that gets us into the kingdom, or if it was what we said, then the best liars would be in the kingdom. They would have the highest places, right? It's not what we say, it's what our hearts embrace as true. He is coming. Everyone will give an account. The shepherds will give an account. Most of all. Pastors, elders, and teachers. Most of all. That's why sometimes people say around here, pray for your leaders. Because we don't want to slip up. And we don't want to blow it. And if we blow it, we want to run back really quick and do it right. And make up for it, right? Let, let us pray now. Lord Jesus, you're so direct here. You are watching and you are coming. And let nothing in this world persuade us otherwise or to forget that or to look on anything here as more important than you, our master, our savior, who purchased us with your own blood. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.